Have you ever had an idea for a physical product that you just knew had the potential to change the world? Maybe it was something you dreamt up in your garage or a solution to a problem you encountered in your daily life. Whatever it was, you knew it was a winner. If only you could turn that idea into something. Well, you are not alone. Countless entrepreneurs and innovators have stood exactly where you stand, filled with passion and drive, but unsure of where to begin. And that's where the Builder Circle comes in. My name is Seda Ejiman, and I'm a mechanical engineer, hardware enthusiast, and hardware mentor. I've had the privilege of working with numerous hardware companies that are passionate about solving some of the biggest challenges in the world. And I will be your host as we explore the exciting and complex world of physical product development. All right, welcome to the Builder Circle. Today, I have Greg Paulson from Exometry. And we're going to talk all about rapid prototyping, different manufacturing capabilities that uh, startups can leverage, and how it can affect the entire design and product development process. So thank you so much for being on the show, Greg. Yeah, really happy to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Awesome. So Greg, would you mind giving a little bit of a background of who you are, what you've worked on, so that the listeners know who they're listening to? Yeah, absolutely. Again, my name is Greg Paulson. I am the Director of Applications Engineering and Marketing at Zometry, which is kind of a mouthful, but I'm typically, when you interact with me, it's usually spinning the CAD. It's usually when I'm, I'm working with a client, whether it's someone that's just getting introduced into manufacturing or veterans who are working on fulfillment and sustainment projects, I, I help our customers learn what to choose, when, and why. And I work o across over a couple dozen different manufacturing processes from low volume rapid prototyping methods all the way up to hard tooling and help also figure out when to transition from one stage to another. So my background, I've worked for over 15 years in advanced manufacturing, worked with Zometry for nearly a decade. So basically, as long as Zometry has been around, I've been with the team here. I, I get to work with so many different projects. We have a digital interface that allows customers to upload their 3D files, get instant pricing over a variety of different processes, and press go and just keep on moving. And, and, and whether that's one of our nine types of additive manufacturing or traditional CNC machining, sheet metal, molding, you name it. And we just have one place to go to get your work started and keep on running and keep on designing. My, my background, actually, so I started my career working in rapid prototyping product development. We were, I was on a product development team. We'd be contracted by startups to help work on that engineering design development and work through those iterative steps. So that's kind of how I, I learned, burnt my hands on the stove a lot so I could teach mm -hmm. others how not to going along the way because we just had to make something work. Mm -hmm. And certainly in, in hardware startups, you are the designer, the developer, the tester, the everything or in this. And but you may not have this global knowledge of mm -hmm. supply chain or manufacturing or even like what manufacturing technologies are available for this, right. let alone how to design. We have a lot of tools and resources on Zometry's site of, with guidance, design guides, visual guides on what stuff will look like, which actually is really important. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just what will my part look like when I press order here? So we have galleries on our site. And a lot of times a hardware startup company will find us because we make it very easy for them to move and iterate on their, mm -hmm. their designs, create snapshots of their designs as they're going through their processes, change technologies. Uh, for example, I may be 
doing iterative kind of functional designs and using a uh, plastic powder bed additive manufacturing technology like selective laser sintering or HP multi-jet fusion for my lower cost but very durable iterative approach uh, to design these different snapshots along the way where it's durable enough that I could give it to my customer and have them test it out and they're not gonna, it's not going to shatter in their hands. But then I may be moving to a functional fit check where I may use a higher resolution technology and still holding on to 3D printing, stereolithography, or SLA is a good example. That's excellent. The reason that you're on this podcast is really about the swath of manufacturing processes that you are completely exposed to on a day-to-day with all of your customers and all of the vendors and suppliers that you use. So I'm very excited to really dive in and into the pool of knowledge that you're able to provide and kind of talk shop a little bit. And so through what you said, obviously there's a lot of manufacturing capabilities at pe- people's fingertips exometry, which is really cool. I guess one of the things that it enables is this kind of ability to think a little, have the design space be a little bit wider because what you and I spoke about in a previous conversation that I want to bring up right now, because it was such an interesting conversation, uh, was that oftentimes um, designers, if they have a manufacturing process in mind, and usually they have that in mind because it's uh, in the lab that they're working in, like they have, it's there maybe in an incubator space that has a, that has a lathe in the, uh, the basement with some 3D printers and a mill. So they're thinking, what can I build? on a 3D printer and a mill and a lathe, whereas maybe the design asks for more, but this existing manufacturing capabilities creates this bias to design it so that it works with them. So I guess, do you see this in the projects that you work with? And how, I guess, how can people avoid this and how can they think about more about the design requirements rather than the manufacturing method and so on and so forth. If you have examples also of people doing this and not failing, but just kind of narrowing their design space, I'd love to hear more. And and so many examples come in my head with this. Like when I think about the, when I think about a design where this, this person is designing something and they had this idea and with the power of accessible CAD, accessible 3D modeling, and 3D printing in-house, so having a desktop 3D printer, usually mm. something filament-based, they're making this into fruition from idea to reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes uh, these folks don't have formal training in other technologies, so they become really good at designing for desktop FDM, mm-hmm. which is fantastic for low-volume iterative design. Especially if you have it uh, in-house, it's accessible. You're getting an idea and you're printing it and, and working with it the next day. And I can t- already tell you that whenever I work with a client who already has a little bit of manufacturing, like just even a 3D printer, like they're better to work with because they can start understanding principles saying, hey, it turns out gravity does exist out, outside of a CAD space. Mm-hmm. Things can break and they start to have get this empathy for a manufactured product. But at the same time, they may be designing with constraints for a process that won't necessarily scale to where they want to be. Mm-hmm. When I talk with a customer, I usually try to get some time timelines in place and where they want to be. So I may start talking to you and you may just dis- be describing where you want to be in six years. I want this to, in every household. I want, I want it to be like this. And then I may bring you back to a reality check, like where do we need to be right now? Mm-hmm. Are you about to debut this to your first 50 customers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What does your next six weeks look like? And so I usually think about like this, like I always say six weeks, six months, six years, mm-hmm. because it kind of helps differentiate where you are in your project development cycle. Mm-hmm. So are you going outside this R&D concept phase and now you're trying to get into something that would have some trouble scaling in manufacturing, but I just need to get it out and within this budget in six months, that may be I'm moving to more of a harder tooled method. So something like molding, injection molding, for example, and your design will start to go that direction where you have to think more about uniformity of walls where undercuts that could cause uh, side actions, which increase tooling costs and, and draft angles, which I, I think if you haven't worked in a world where draft angles are required, all of a sudden become a headache if you're not designing them into your CAD or being conscious of them mm-hmm. like in your previous design cycles. And then that six years is sustained production, where it's here's where I need to be, figure out the manufacturing processes and work cells in order to make that uh, possible. So it's a little bit different than just like, here's design, make parts. There's entire fulfillment, supply chains, uh, delivery dates. There may be um, some turnkey packaging and other things involved with that. That's in a different lifespan of itself there. But yeah, figuring out where you are in your design cycle, what your goals are for right now. Am I doing a functional test? Do I have a connector that needs to hit a certain weathering IP68 or something like that? And am I just do I just need to test that connector or do I just need to test that whole part? What processes can help me get to that next stage? Do I need to go through if I'm making a medical device? Uh, do I need to start thinking about FDA? What things are what materials, what processes are going to help me get through those initial approval stages? and condense my lead time to where I can make a part that actually could go to my client without being a research or prototype. That's where we kind of can help consult. Okay. So to kind of center in around the rapid prototyping and kind of the transitionary phases of manufacturing, it would be, I think, really helpful for the listeners to know what methods exist out there, because I think there are some very obvious ones and maybe not so obvious ones. If you were to kind of go in your mental catalog and say, for these types of industries or these types of product applications, we see rapid prototyping methods of so, and then kind of transition from there. I'll keep asking questions as you go. Oh, no, absolutely. And so I've done a lot of webinars on uh, different topics and different when to choose uh, topics. So choosing between additive or machining, but let's stick with the additive, which is 3D printing, because we have a gamut of technologies there. Mm-hmm. One of my webinars that I have not done, but it's a topic that I I, I want to touch on, is like when you shouldn't choose SLS or MGF. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are kind of bread and butter commodity industrial additive manufacturing technologies. Could you Selective describe laser them cinch- ones yeah. for people that might not have heard? the acronyms? Absolutely. So a lot of people who are used to 3D printing are used to the filament base. So you have a a filament and it melts and extrudes and zigzags back and forth to create your part from bottom to top. Mm-hmm. With powder bed fusion technologies, you and both SLS and MGF kind of fall in that line. They have different ways to use the plastic, but they're doing very similar behaviors where you have a layer of powder, it almost feels like flour. Mm-hmm. And this powder is actually plastic. It's usually nylon. That layer by layer, about the thickness of a sheet of paper, goes across. And then with selective laser centering, a laser will etch that cross section of your parts. So if you imagine your part split into you know thousands of cross sections, it's going to etch that cross section. And that laser is going to melt that cross section as well as fuse it to the layer underneath, giving you that 
Z direction, that third dimension, hence 3D printing, and then grow those parts from bottom to top. Uh, Multi-jet fusion fuses a little bit different. It has a, a fusion agent and a detailing agent, so it actually deposits a, a kind of this darkened agent across the build chamber on those cross sections, and then a single heat source goes across and creates a melt state. So they have a little bit different technologies, but they're both using similar things, layer by layer, melting powder. Mm-hmm. What's important about this is that wherever there's not a part, there's still powder there. And so I'm able to suspend parts in a three-dimensional space like they're floating. Mm. When you look at traditional 3D printing like filament, it needs to be secured to a build plate. You always think about your XY platform and you have supporting structures that are growing to take overhang features because it turns out, again, gravity does exist in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have uh, something supporting an overhang, the overhang just flops down and you get like a naughty mess um, with the print. With selective laser sintering and multi-jet fusion, these powder beds, if you imagine me taking a golf ball and just kind of sticking into flower of deep down and letting go, mm-hmm. the part neither sinks nor floats. It just stays mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. If you imagine a three-dimensional space, an SLS about 13 by 13 by 23 inches, I can take different geometries, complex housing mm-hmm. next to rotors, next to clips, next to everything else, and basically nest them computationally about two millimeters away from each other. And that allows me to build at any given time about 30 to 300 parts per machine per night. And with that, it means that for you, the price range, even though this is a, this very expensive technology, an SLS machine is about $470,000. It's these are This is why it's industrial, right? An industrial machine is, they're not cheap. But when you look at it at scale, like when you're running fully nested builds, for you as a consumer, you're essentially just renting that space, that yeah. volume that your part's taking up. And so you may find it's actually often more economical than industrial FDM sometimes because you have that three-dimensional nesting. And what I love about it too is you have more isotropic results. So you have parts have similar mechanical properties regardless of orientation. So if you mm. think if you compare that to your filament base, where thing where parts are kind of sandwiched on layer by layer, they're yep. weak at the next layer. So between those layers, they have a weak spot. So if I build a pencil horizontally, like it's laying flat with FDM, it may have better strength, but it'll be look really coarse. But if I grow a vertical where it's a bunch of little circles building from mm-hmm. the bottom to the top, it'll probably break faster than a pencil would break mm-hmm. if you're putting pressure against it. So you ha- don't have a mechanical advantage there. Mm-hmm. And again, and also nylon itself is kind of this commodity material that is in these powder bed processes. And, they, and it is flexible when you design it thinner when you design ribs and stiffening features, it acts stiff. It's a very mechanically sound material and just naturally tough. So even though it is can be your lowest cost industrial application for 3D printing, it still doesn't it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means mm. it's commoditized. It's kind of like in CNC machine 6061 is like the bread and butter millable material in the United States. And it doesn't mean that's bad. It means actually it's pretty dang good. And it's so good that it's used in a lot of industries. And so it's cheaper to do and a lot of people know how to mill it so 85 90 percent of the time those process the sls and mjf processes actually work really well for your application you can even do secondary smoothing like chemical vapor smoothing to move it from a matte to sugar cube into more of a semi-gloss uh, finish and a sealed surface uh, to it so you could do some extra things to it and then we also do have fdm because fdm what's when is it good to have support structures 
larger, bulkier parts where right. they could thermally warp and stuff, picture frame style designs. And FDM can build up to 36 inch parts. So we can do larger parts with that. And that's that filament base. And then a lot of the other technologies are resin style. Mm-hmm. So they're, that's what your base material is actually a liquid. And that liquid gets cured with UV and that's stereolithography. We have Nexa 3D LSPC. We have carbon digital light synthesis, DLS, and polyjet, which is kind of, it's a resin base. It's almost like an inkjet printer, but with three dimensions. So mm-hmm. most of the time it's used for multicolor printing or multi-material printing. Mm-hmm. In, so you could add digital rubbers next to kind of these acrylic base, acrylic-based rigid materials. But those, the liquid-based materials, those resin 3D printing uh, processes, have axe-like materials. So polycarbonate-like, which means stiffer, or ABS, which is kind of a, a blend be- between stiffness and some flexibility, or um, polypropylene, which is just a little bit more flexible. But they're never quite the same properties as that polypropylene or that that nylon or that uh, that polycarbonate, what we give with these other processes. Mm-hmm. But I do use those for smoother surface finishes from the initial print, as well as typically better mechanical tolerances. So if you do need a yeah. higher detail resolution, resin really fits the bill there. Yeah, definitely. And I've had experience, I mean, with resin, obviously, I've, I've done prints on Formlabs printers, which mm-hmm. have been really good in terms of uh, in terms of the tolerances that you're looking for. I've also worked with carbon printer, the carbon printer. It's really fun. I mean, you can you can print lattices really well, specifically in rubbery material, which is super interesting. Yeah, I, I finally gave in and bought the some Adidas uh, shoes with the carbon oh, DLS. Nice. It's uh, like midsoles. I was like, I should do this. I'm in the industry, so yeah, I'll That's actually be awesome. uh, going out some events uh, later this year sporting those shoes. So I'm kind of excited to do that. Uh, but yeah, D, you're, for example, yeah, DLS is a resin-based printer that. It kind of turns it upside down, right? You're building, mm-hmm. you're growing on a build plate, but you're kind of pulling the part vertically out of a resin bath, and it's which being is cured. so interesting because it, the design space changes so much because it's going backwards. We've had yeah. several failed prints where it just kind of ripped at the middle stage because it was either too tall or the support structure wasn't there. But yeah, fascinating. No, you're on the ball. So stereolithography is like is a resin bath where the parts are being lowered into the bath and a laser is hitting the top of the resin and curing it to the layer underneath. What is cool about that in stereolithography is I could typically do a higher mix of designs. So in yeah. one large build, I can do 20 different designs yeah. and of different sizes. So SLA is, is it's also about, I don't know, 40 years old in the, in the additive tech space. So it's very well researched. And it is yeah. very consistent. I, I think build success rate on industrial SLA is like 97%. I mean, it's yeah. pretty much once it's programmed, you have a decent idea that it's going to be successful success, when it's done printing. The success is great. I personally, it's just so messy to deal with yeah. the resin, the curing, the post-process. But it, I agree <laughs> that it has the least amount of just squiggly mess that happens with more filament-based printing. Yeah. But yeah, you, when you were mentioning DLS though, and those the even uh, Next LSPC, those are upside down. And mm-hmm. actually, when you're pulling part out, you're absolutely right. By the way, gravity can be a problem. Uh, it typically requires thicker support structures. Even on the part itself, you may see more noticeable like bumps uh, from where it's supported. And parts like lattices or designs that are cylindrical or designs that are kind of self-supporting, 
mm-hmm. tend to be more favorable in that design than essentially throwing any design at it. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, because yeah, if, with a high mix world, you may be running about a 60% success on first print. Now they have the advantage of actually being fast, like super fast. So even if you get a fail, it's just reset and start go, start going again. Uh, and then once you have the support and the strategy up, it it tends to print very very robust, very reliably. But you have a you do sometimes need to kind of reorient or adjust your supporting structures because you're pulling a part out. And I keep on saying this, but it's so true. In a CAD environment, your parts is floating in the middle there. Yeah. But once you apply gravity to anything, it's you know a challenge and I I actually I'll, I'll give I'll tell everybody this in design for 3D printing. First off, fillets are your best friend. Mm-hmm. Fillets reduce acute breakpoints across your part, and also when you are designing features on your parts, think about what's going to happen if you hold your part by that feature. I one of my one of the things I've seen and it it breaks my heart every time is. A person will design something pretty big, like a large part, which usually can be expensive to to build, and hundreds of dollars or even low thousands of dollars sometimes for larger parts. And then they'll build a pin in it, and they'll design it in, like a little pin. And that pin, depending on where it is, can be really fragile or even get crushed by the gravity of the part. I've 100% seen that before, but I've also seen where they get this part, the part's perfect, they take it out of the box, instantly break that feature, that th- mm-hmm. thin feature. And their part's scrapped. Yeah. Or it requires like drilling and reworking those part those parts. And you have this very expensive piece that now you are now you're having to kind of scrap or remake or glue and epoxy. Mm-hmm. And I call those god pins, those those features. I've seen rocket little model rocket ships where they have antenna on top and mm-hmm. One fall and the antenna breaks off and like the cosmetics of the part is gone. And like, that's where you sometimes when you're designing for additive, you may want to look at those features and say, can I turn that into a hole with a press fit pin? Like use off the shelf components instead, because I could buy 25 steel pins for four bucks. Mm-hmm. And Don't design commodities. <laughs> it, no, if you can please, find yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, it's the same reason why we don't design in threads. We usually recommend for to use press fit inserts. Press into, fit inserts, yeah. Yeah, because you, you can tap like different materials like SLS and MJF tap like butter and we could do those services for you. Press like brass screw to expand inserts are very good for yeah. certain technologies. In Just the put a heated insert, it's easy, right? I mean, yeah, thermoplastic, yeah. use a heat stick insert and we do that service like on, on our on Zometry's uh, website, you could just click inserts, put how many you're in and, and uh, you need and attach a drawing. Mm-hmm. That easy. Very interesting. This podcast is presented to you by Pratik, a startup advising and coaching company that is geared to help hardware entrepreneurs get their ideas from a napkin sketch into a lab and out into the world. Um, Okay, with that, so this is, I think, a really natural point in the podcast to uh, do a podcast break and talk about hardware horror stories. I'm sure that you've uh, seen a decent amount um, of those um, so yeah, if you could talk to kind of when either a hardware startup got it wrong and that set them up for issues, wh- whether it's the, it, within their, I guess, manufacturing strategy, and maybe they either underst- undersize their strategy where they're doing too much of rapid prototyping and not transitioning over quick enough or something along those lines. I think 
you, listeners definitely benefit from hearing the horror story so that they don't have to experience it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll draw from actually some of my early years at, um, in product development, uh, even pre-zometry, uh, where you know we were serving clients of all different types and it, even including very professional large entities where uh, certain things, uh, when they transition to production, they, knowing what I know now, I wish I knew that when I was like in my second year of career and raised my hand and would have said, stop mm-hmm. right now. Uh, I have a... Speaking earlier, but on a much larger scale, designing for a 3D printing process mm-hmm. and then moving to a, an injection molding. I remember working on an optics device where the initial goal of that optics device was to build using fused deposition modeling Ultim, which is Ultim's a very high strength, great durable material. Mm-hmm. The original design, because it's designed for 3D printing, didn't have draft angles, didn't have any of these things that you need for molding. It was kind of bulky. And again, they had the ultimate as our spec, but they realized that this housing needed to hold atmosphere pressure. A lot of times in, in kind of military projects or different devices, they actually have are slightly pressurized, not overpressure or anything, but slightly pressurized in an environment inside to keep the electronics safe in a bay. Mm-hmm. With FDM, FDM is inherently porous. Like a, you, those layer by layers, you have micro gaps, so you can yeah. never really seal it. Or if you're yeah. if you are trying to seal it, it's not really production viable at that point. Let's right. move. So they're like, let's move the molding. But they didn't think. Now that we have the freedom of molding, what materials can be available for me? Right. Because in three D printing, you may have a dozen materials. Mm-hmm. In injection molding. You have, I don't know, 30,000. Uh, you have yeah. a lot of choice going through. And that's when you usually could, even if you're new to this, you could benchmark saying, hey, I like that camera housing. What's it made out of? And it could mm-hmm. be PCADS or glass fill nylon. And this part probably could have been glass fill nylon. And they moved to Ultim. So comparing Ultim pricing is about $55 a kilogram or higher. Wow. Compared to most materials are about a dollar, dollar pound, or sorry, pound, a dollar pound or $55 pound for these premium materials. So the parts became kind of prohibitively expensive. Yeah. And also the design was not quite optimized because it's just basically a drag and drop into an industrial manufacturing process. So the design itself created expensive tooling. It created a, it created a challenge on the material costs. And even these materials sometimes have requires have more special requirements. So it just became a much more difficult project than it really needed to be mm. because the because this one to one transition going from like this three D space and now that's our changing processes and this is my last six months six years like where do you want to be like I think we could have stepped back and said raise our hand and said here's some design changes we want to do now. And here's the material substitution and take that extra two, three weeks of rapid prototyping and iterative design, uh, working on that in order to create a much, much more successful outcome in the end. So I've definitely seen that transition happen. And this is this was not a cheap project. This was high budget requirements, but even veterans in the industry can make these mistakes. I, I think the other thing that I found too, and this comes down to when you are transitioning to a different technologies is understanding the difference between checking off a project benchmark and s- successful outcomes. When you're building an integrated device, 
uh, you may be creating enclosure or housings around a PCB design. And if something changes there and you've already released tooling, this is where MEs and EEs really need to be best friends with each other and be over communicating. Mm -hmm. But if you have a design requirement change and the mechanical components are released to production, like this EE finds they need extra capacitors or something within their design or a different junction or they need to move a feature, you may either need to scrap that tool or jerry-rig internally, like lots of Kapton tape, possibly doing a 3D print, a 3D print little frame to help move the PCB around or add extra components to it, or even post-machine your production unit. And that's where just my word of caution, but I've seen it way too many times actually, where it's all whoops, and then you have to go and uh, bring all your all your low-cost injection mold components or your CNC milled parts and bring them back to the mill and mm -hmm. modify at best for that. Or you do a tooling rework, which can be costly and, and time consuming to do. But that's something where, especially in hardware, everything we're designing is usually an enclosure or some sort of packaging around a electronics. Mm -hmm. And with supply chain shortages, mm -hmm. hardware going out of stock or obsolete constantly, you, you may find that that like your design changes much more than you expect your tool life cycle to last. Mm -hmm. And just being aware of that, talking with your team, uh, identifying the risks in your bill of material, and even compensating with CAD, kind of understanding where you're going to be. Like, am, is this design going to last through multiple revs, multiple, mm -hmm. multiple generations of the product, or is this going to be one-off? It'll change your manufacturing approach, your tooling strategy, you may have other, uh, you may find that it may be best to move forward with 3D printing, for example, like until like things solidify and you kind of are building work cells around it mm -hmm. uh, because you're just going to be changing tools way too often. Or you may be adding extra space, like you're talking your ME, buying them the, the favorite six pack of beer, make sure that they give you some extra room as an EE. So you're designing, so you're designing things that can work together for future generations. I mean, that's really sound advice. I think uh, that happens all the time, specifically with PCAB designs nowadays due to the supply chain shortages. And just generally, there's also a, lo a lot of internal discussion sometimes that happens later on where it's, is it a firmware problem? Is it a electrical EE problem? Or is it a MECI problem? And I think those conversations happening before tooling happens is probably the best approach there. I guess I, I actually had a a question and uh, kind of, I guess, like prying a ho horror story, if you've ever seen any. You were talking about this kind of powder bed uh, printing process, and you said that the thing about it that's really cool is that it can uh, accommodate overhangs and uh, stuff that doesn't uh, have support, but it can print it because of um, its inherent structure. Uh, have you ever seen, and this is, again, referring back to the manufacturing method bias uh, that we talked about. Have you ever seen people design it to that powder bed, but then it can't scale? Or is there are there methods from that powder bed design that can scale? Because that's not really obvious to me, so I'm curious. Yeah, and actually, yeah, and just kind of abstracting 3D printing scale scalability has to do with how many can I fit in that build? Mm. And then how many machines can run that build parallel? So mm. it's very different than formative production where it's, Close cycle time, open, part falls out. Close cycle time, open, part falls out. 
-hmm. with additive manufacturing, you're kind of doing smart batches. So usually the larger the part is, the less scalable it may be moving to a production stage. Uh, but you're, uh, to your point too, the more complexity that you add within that design, SLS is really fun. I could do organic shapes. I could do off-angle features. I could add a grid and lattice inside here. But it, it, it may lock me down into that exactly. process. Right. And this is where in your design stage, sometimes we have this idea of CAIV, which is cost as an independent variable. Mm -hmm. What are you trying to sell, it, sell this to your customers for? And if you're finding out that, hey, this SLS part cost me this much, and you hope that it could scale down to, to this level, we can help work with you and actually design what a work cell looks like, production work cell. But ultimately, we have a cost for these builds, and you can only fit so many in. Mm -hmm. So unlike injection molding, where the tooling cost just keeps on monetizing down, every single time we do a cycle, like some of that tooling cost is absorbed in that part. And we want to move to thousands, 10,000, 100,000, all of a sudden, tooling cost is negligible. And it, you kind of cap out in additive manufacturing. And it just depends on how much value are you designing into that part. Mm. It's because it, it definitely, you do it definitely do have break evens. But if you find that I'm trying to get to this cost, you may need to take a few steps backwards, look at that single part and say, doesn't need to be two parts. Mm -hmm. Doesn't need to be three parts. And each exactly. of those three parts can be injection molded and figure out what that next stage is. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's, that, I guess that's what I was trying to get at because I do think uh, that oftentimes uh, I, I can see engineers getting really excited about a uh, rapid prototyping process um, mm -hmm. and using it to the utmost degree. Uh, and then now they have a design that absolutely can't be manufactured in in a different setting. Uh, so it's it, it can be manufactured in in low quantities, but cannot scale. So having, I guess, the takeaway here is that if you're using rapid prototype manufacturing methods, it's really important to understand what it's unlocking and what yeah. potential future higher volume ones won't unlock. So really understanding the design constraints, what it unlocks, what materials you can use and all of that, like just general features of what a rapid prototyping, rapid prototyping manufacturing technique provides you. And then understand that is scalable to a degree and maybe talking to experts to say how much, how many maximum can I build with this? And then scoping your design according to that. And then once you move to that kind of higher scale thing, okay, we need to reevaluate our design, maybe get rid of some features, maybe split it up. What what materials am I going to use? Kind of ask yeah. those questions again, because I feel like sometimes there's this narrow vision. We need to ask what materials we're going to have, what design features we're going to have early on, and then you just commit to it. But that isn't quite how that works, because in the early stages, you're doing technology development. So you have to answer these fundamental questions and you need to be able to iterate quick. And that's why you use these rapid prototypes mechanisms. But then the question changes now. It's OK, mm -hmm. the technology inherently works how can I make this exist in the world? And so you need to ask yourself the question again uh, of what is the material? What technique do I use? What features can I build out so that it's cheaper? Uh, and as you said, cost as a variable, because now cost is a variable, uh, whereas in the very early stages, it might have not been. Yeah, and you're hitting the nail on the head for sure on this. It is, and by the way, I am probably one of the most excited people out there for additive manufacturing and rapid prototyping technologies because it does just bring access and, I've watched this industry even so because rapid prototyping, additive manufacturing, 3D printing exists, mm -hmm. CAD got cheaper. 
Yeah. Like if CAD got more accessible because now you have this pe- people are like, hey, I got accessible ways to manufacture, but STL, like they, uh. they, they don't have CAD access. So then you're seeing these programs like Onshape, Autodesk Fusion 360, these lower cost programs, free CAD coming in and being accessible and giving professional ways to design and execute. And now you're getting access to manufacturability. And by the way, bringing it back to Zometry, that's kind of why we exist too, is we're democratizing access to manufacturing and we're using AI and machine learning along the way to, to for pricing and scaling supply chain management. But it is, it's, it's 100% understanding kind of where you are and understanding that sometimes your choices are change. Yeah. Going back to those hardware nightmares, Sometimes it's, I've seen CDRs, like critical design reviews phases, where it's just basically project managers looking for them to show a PowerPoint and saying, okay, please proceed. But really a very important part of a critical design review is saying, stop, mm-hmm. stop, assess, rethink what are, what is treated like a pre-mortem. Yeah. So how can, what are the mm-hmm. five things that could go terrible if we move forward and how can we mitigate that? in the next few days in order to have a more successful outcome in the future. Yeah. Such a good call out because I do think that there is this overemphasis uh, that hardware startups because of honestly, I, I maybe it's the investment culture. I mean, I could get into all, many reasons <laughs> of why this is the case, but there's this overemphasis on speed, which I totally understand. And there are parts of it that need to be that you need to be speedy, but at the same time, being able to have these natural stoppers, because at the end of the day, if you go down the path of the wrong design, oh boy, is that going to cost you so much time? Absolutely. Yeah. So I completely agree with that. I want to quickly talk about, because we didn't get into it in the earlier uh, stages um, of the conversation, but I really also want to get your thoughts on metal printing, because Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of up and coming. I haven't seen a lot of startups use it, honestly. There there are a few. It's just the barrier of entry seems a little bit high for a lot of people. One, there isn't as much common knowledge around metal 3D printing. People would rather go to mills and the old kind of techniques. So I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on different types of metal printing and what they can be, what they can enable in designs. Absolutely. This will go back to that theme of how much value am I putting my design and that's going to help you understand when and where to choose metal 3D printing. Metal 3D printing, so Zometry, we offer two of the most popular ways of, of achieving metal 3D prints. And metal 3D printing is, it's metal. It is, it is, it's not metal-like, it's real metal. We're making parts out of stainless steel, aluminum alloy. And these, these parts, two major methods are direct metal laser sintering, similar to that plastic powder bed mm-hmm. that you're putting a fine layer of metal powder mm-hmm. down in, in an inert chamber. A laser is hitting that, and it's essentially creating like a little micro weld there. Mm-hmm. Now, unlike that plastic powder bed, metal misbehaves. Yeah, Metal will stress and want to flex up and move all around. And in plastic powder beds, you keep the whole build chamber hot in order for parts not the, the plastic parts not to kind of flex and warp up. In metal, you're essentially centering them, you're melting them to a thick build plate. And the entire build, which requires support structures, just think your FDM print only now, my support structures are not, let me use my fingers and remove, it's let me use an angle grinder and remove, right? It's, it is a, they're metal supports, but your, your parts is fighting against that build plate the entire run. Design rules for metal 3D printing are different than design rules for CNC machining. 
the less work my milling does. So the more bulk I keep in my part on CNC milling is the cheaper part is because I, I have I have a bar of material and I'm removing features from them, uh, removing material to make the features of my part. Right. With additive, the more your part's on a diet, the less work it has to do right. in order to produce those features. So why would I choose additive manufactured metal products? I will, I'm usually having a design that will have similar looks to what a metal injection molded product or a die cast product may have with the addition of me being able to add more organic geometry if I'd like. So generative design features work really well with additive manufactured metal components or when I'm building features that have either inaccessible areas. So lattices is kind of like the typical example, but that could even be hollows. It could be things where as long as I have a place to empty the uncentered powder, I could have some internal channels and chambers to lightweight a design. Mm. Uh, Or I could build these off-angle features that would typically in CNC machining require fifth axis or multiple geometries and just add overhead time complexity to the build, which increases the cost of those parts. Mm -hmm. So there definitely is a break-even curve with additive manufacturer components. And typically, though, you are finding that most of the time, when you see industry examples, it's in high-value, lightweighted designs. So that's why you see it in aerospace. It's because they have the budget to work and design out and build out you know, these multi-thousand dollar parts, you know, or 10, 20,000, when you see the big stuff, I mean, they're, yeah, they're tens yeah. of thousands of dollars, if not more, to produce those those uh, those parts. Mm-hmm. But the savings, the ROI on them are just insane because every yeah. pound saved on this is this many gallons of fuel for, per year. And, you and uh, you know, weight is a true metric uh, yeah. With, yeah. with metals. Binder jet metals, which is another technology, has more scalability. And that's, that is, again, a thin la- layer of powder, but it's an ink binder. Uh, I kind of think like a inkjet deposited glue mm-hmm. is going down and holding the metal pieces together layer by layer. So when I get my parts out, they're in kind of a green phase, and then we debind those, which removes that that polymerized uh, binder, and that's a kind of a brown phase. And then you, then you go to a sintering oven where that material goes to the very high heat, and essentially those that powder beads will melt together and if I call it sintering and it does have it's about 97 98% dense so mm-hmm. it is not it's not like there's a little bubble in the middle of it it just means that if you look at a cross section under a microscope you'll see tiny little channels of porosity on it so it's not mm-hmm. good for gas type applications but it can make very durable very strong and regularly complex metal parts in uh, typically a steel alloy binder that's nice because it doesn't require that support structure so you have more volume with it uh, but it's usually is still catering to parts that are smaller than a golf ball. Mm. And when you think about production, so I can do larger right. parts in binder jet. Like I've done very cool big auger screws and stuff with it. Uh, but when I'm thinking about single alloys, typically parts smaller than four inches are preferred. But in production, parts smaller than an inch cube is pr- more production viable uh, for lots sure. of reasons. And and it does require more tuning than direct metal sintering. So binder jet processes because they have a furnace stage. There's some warping, deflection, and shrinkage that happens. There's better software out there for that. But something to understand your product development lifecycle is you may need to iterate a few times Mm -hmm. using that design. Once you find 
a design that's tweaked in a way where it's successful is usually very repeatable, but you may be working on several weeks timeline. So it's very different than the RP rapid prototype method. This is my Sean Bean, Lord of the Rings being right. Like one does not simply metal 3D print. It just, it does require um, a little bit more, uh, unfortunately, a little bit more tribal knowledge at this point. I think mm -hmm. software will augment it in the next decade. It'll just be part of our CAD program saying, this part's going to be metal 3D print, optimize, click, and then all the CAD data is there. And I pray for that day. Uh, but for right now, it is, it still does have a lot of learned experience once you adopt yeah. it. It may substitute from your need to die cast metal injection mold and working working in those scalable phases because you can do a little bit more with these technologies and get rid of that tooling and that lead time up the tooling. But there is there's definitely some it's definitely a higher barrier to entry, higher cost option yeah. when you're jumping into it. That makes a lot of sense. And it's super interesting to think through. It seems we talked about how traditional kind of plastic rapid prototyping methods have still kind of a vast difference from what it means to scale in a different manufacturing method with this potentially the same material. It seems like there's even a larger gap uh, difference uh, between metal 3D printing and other methods to do higher uh, quantity manufacturing uh, for metal. And actually, as you we were talking, I was thinking about uh, one time I, I visited a, a aerospace company. They they built rockets, and they showed me their uh, industrial three D printer. Uh, they said that they did uh, a lot of nozzle printing because the geometry that they were trying to achieve were almost impossible before three D metal three D printing existed. And the machine was as big as my living room. It was. Oh, yeah. I think they said it was the largest in the world. So I guess metal three D printing is at this point in time, more so reserved to potentially industrial application startups where they're building one of something or two of something and it needs to, the functionality is so important that you need to be able to extend your design space so much, but you are very adamant on the metal material that you're using and traditional methods just don't get you there. Absolutely. I think this is where we're seeing the initial adoption. That being said, I do I strongly believe that metals are going to really take a lot more form and a lot more precedent with with accessibility mm -hmm. in the next several years. I've been seeing more improvements, especially on metal binder jetting, that where it's going to be more cost effective, as well as software. That software is going to make this much more accessible and less of a tedious experience. Here's the thing about plastics versus metal printing. If I have a plastic 3D print and I need to modify it, I have a drill, I have files, I have sandpaper. I, I can make it work. I could add epoxy and then sand it down. Yeah, I could do a lot to modify my part, and I do that. And I, actually, part of my earlier career, I had a whole toolbox by me just to modify a part before we actually received it into receiving inspection in order to bring it up to our tolerances and spec. That's okay. Use reamers, whatever you need. With metal, if you wait a couple of weeks and get that metal part, and say you have a square slot for keyway, and the part doesn't fit, you're just out of luck. I mean, yeah. you need to machine or you need to bring it to, especially if it's a, a non-round feature that can't just be drilled out on a machine. Like if, say, you have a star, a star spline or something like that, you have to either scrap the design or figure out broaching or something really clever to augment that. So those headaches when your design doesn't come out just the way you're hoping for with metal can be 
much more difficult to work with, uh, especially if you can't have a good predictive result on what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I really have to emphasize that you could still, like Zometry, we instant quote metal 3D prints. And you're able to see those pricing and then say you do our work on design that does require the robustness of stainless steel. Mm -hmm. And it, you're working on lower quantities uh, of products. It may just make sense for you to choose this over traditional machining. I've seen even traditional companies that have used, uh, um, that are typically working in investment casting. And they've done studies where they're like, hey, our annual need for this investment cast part, once we have our initial implementation, so think MRO, so maintenance repair mm -hmm. work, they're, they're finding that replacing that production with additive manufactured metal parts for maintenance and repair is a cost saver, a cost and time saver, because they could get that part just as functional, actually often higher, better properties than that investment cast in a, a sub two week timeline. And that allows them to very quickly respond when they need maintenance, when their parts are down. So there's places where it is filling in, even in just the typical manufacturing world, right? The traditional, which is still the major part portion of manufacturing out there. Uh, and I'm just seeing more and more applications. But you're absolutely right. The adoption's a little bit slower. The costs are a little bit higher. And, and meeting and bridging that here's my design, what am I going to get, really requires software in the loop to bring us to the most success. Yeah. I agree. And I think that specifically DFX, when it comes to design and what manufacturing method needs to be used is super important. And I guess on that side of things, what are some common pitfalls you've seen product developers or startups, if you have specifics, specific examples, kind of the common pitfalls when it comes to DFX? Yeah. A lot of times I, I just start with really basic analogies. Let's move the, the plastics really quickly, but if I'm taking a CNC design or a design that would be typically machined and I'm moving it to a plastic, or if I have that CNC design mindset, mm -hmm. actually FDM, fused deposition modeling, is that filament-based 3D printing is very analogous in its mm -hmm. design rules. Mm -hmm. Because I'm I that that layer of material, that thickness, that bead and strand of plastic has a width to it. It's almost like drawing with a crayon right? Or at least a one millimeter color pencil or something like that. And when you think about wall thicknesses, you typically are working on that 1.5 millimeter or um, you know, uh, 60,000 safe zone, if you will, mm -hmm. like for wall thicknesses there. And it's very analogous to how I would design for a CNC machine part. So if you're comfortable with designing for machining or you kind of know those rules, usually designing for FDM, follows very similar rules and you could cheat a little bit, but you know, go off angle features and things like that with additive manufacturing, but it's still like that accessibility, everything else about that. You, you do want to think about um, that in the design because it does require supporting structures. Designing for molding, putting parts on that diet, instead of adding thickness to a part, using ribs for strength, mm -hmm. right? That type of design, it works really well for those resin-based technologies as well as for uh, plastic powder bed technologies. Those analogies work very well in that phase and you could go a little bit thinner on walls. I still will say if you are always designing to the minimum wall thickness, it's like going to an auto store and saying, I want the thinnest brakes possible. You're designing risk into your, desi into your design. You go to minimums where you need to go to minimums, but work with nominals or slightly larger than that in order to have a more consistent print because 
things happen. And again, mechanic stuff exists. People will squeeze your part or twist your part or it'll drop on the floor. Mm-hmm. And you don't want your part to break you know, the first time it feels stress. Uh, so it's very different than resolution is not where you should be designing. Resolution shows where you can put text and other images in on top of your robust design. Mm-hmm. But in general, for additive manufacturing, like I, I really do think bigger, bulky designs, FDM works really well for that. If your designs have more organic features, moving to SLS, MJF, or resin-based technologies are going to work much, much better mm-hmm. uh, for you. I see this all the time where someone doesn't want to spend the extra $4 to move to SLS, and they get like a very small part in FDM. And we were talking about 10,000 layers, and wow. this course feature, your part just doesn't look great. I mean, no yeah. other way to say it. The machine did its darndest to make your design. The machine yeah. worked its hardest to make that design, but it just has naturally coarser features where other other processes j- just will dance all day with organic features and, and small smaller, wispier designs. And also the material itself tends to be more forgiving. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, for me, that's one of the biggest things is like usually where like, what am I choosing? What's uh, my goals? Am I looking for mechanical robustness? Am I looking for detail resolution? Am I looking for clear? That's a very common thing that someone looks for. In that case, resins print clear parts. So we have several ways of printing a part that is translucent. And we have some coatings that we found to bring up to. I'll never say transparent. Mm-hmm. I'll say ice cube, bring it up to ice cube clarity. Getting to optical is a very different conversation and usually adds a couple of zero or two to your order because that's manual work. But that's like my general guidelines is usually I look at the design and I can start instantly seeing what processes are good with that. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it's what are your goals? Mechanical, is it stiff? Is it rubber? Is it metal? Is it, there's a really great down select. Does it need to be sterilized? Does it, is it like what temperatures is it going to live in? Is it, does it need to have some sort of water or air tightness to it? That's, is it going to be dropped? It's going to be hit. Mm-hmm. It's going to be kicked. What chemical exposure? All that will help down select very quickly into what processes you'll be working toward. That's perfect. I think the parameters that you listed out are great for just people to think about and also know going into these conversations when it comes to manufacturing, because oftentimes I see a lot of startups jumping the gun of working with suppliers or manufacturers or exometry, and they don't have their requirements squared up. Knowing your requirements and kind of going through that list that Greg just mentioned to be able to have a successful engagement, but also pick the right manufacturing. Because if you don't have those requirements or you find that out later, then you might be going down the path of the wrong manufacturing process. Are there any other parameters that might be helpful for people to mention? I would say just in general, the we are looking at additive manufacturing. It doesn't have the vastness of accessibility in materials that machining or molding may have. Right. You have under each technology vertical you have a certain set of materials. That's a good set, but it's not the set. It's not the total set. Yeah. And, and so those attributes, just as I mentioned, impact resistant, thinking about attributes like flexible tends to be more useful than thinking about materials. Mm-hmm. I can print nylon 12 in SLS, MJF, and FDM. FDM is the filament base. So all of a sudden you have, a, you have that Z strength difference, right? You have MJF may have a certain difference to SLS. And thinking just straight on materials will not always get you exactly where you want to be with your design. Even I've had people that are working saying, I need a part to be ABS. 
Mm-hmm. I, but their design resolution was much better fitting for a resin-based process. So it's more about what do you need your design to do? They're like, I needed to, I wanted ABS because I have this pin here that needs to kind of slightly deflect to move in. Mm-hmm. And then on that case, we're like, okay, let's look at this, this semi-flexible resin instead, because what they really wanted was a snap. That it, eventually it'll be ABS, but right now I just needed to snap in place. And so it, you, it brings you to a very different conversation and, and usually gets you in the right technology and material vertical mm-hmm. out of manufacturing when you're thinking about attributes. Yeah, that's a good call out too. It, system interfaces are important. Usually what the part is going to interact with could sometimes dictate how the part is designed or manufactured or what material you even use. So I think having that kind of system level thought and going into conversations where you communicate that is a super important mm-hmm. parameter to mention. Okay, great. This has been a great conversation. I really want to kind of wrap it up with your thoughts around general just development and innovation in the hardware development space regarding AI or other developments that you'd be interested in mentioning. Oh, yeah. What what a time to be alive. <laughs> I mean, just honestly, that's... I We use AI as a core, a geometry's process. So what I mentioned, instant pricing, what's actually kind of happening behind the scenes is we have computational geometry interpreting mm-hmm. that 3D model that you're uploading. Mm-hmm. It's a, And it's looking at, it's, it's driving different attributes of this, but it's different than a cost plus where we're like, oh, how long will it take to build here? Let me add an overhead and do this. Instead of saying parts like this on a competitive marketplace in this process at this quantity with these features cost this much. Mm. So it's that machine learning black box where you just give it a bunch of information and over iterations of iterations, a decade of information, millions of parts quoted. And it work, we're, and also we are on dog food, right? We're sourcing directly to our manufacturer paying for this. So we actually know the cost because we've done it before. Mm-hmm. So getting this market-based pricing uh, AI derived is how we move at speed. Exometry mm-hmm. is, is being able to do that. And we use AI for our AI-driven matchmaking as well. Not just what you say you do, but do you actually do it? Uh, suppliers, based on their behavior and their work, we work to build. We work to actually match relevant work with the suppliers. How mm-hmm. if you're on Netflix and you see that little match score saying, "Hey, there's a 96% chance you're going to like this show." Yeah, they kind of see that. The suppliers see a percent match score saying, hey, there's like an 84% chance that you're going to take this job right now. <laughs> like we, we, we predict that and, and we let them know. We're like, hey, we think this is a good fit for you. And so it gives more relevance for the suppliers because suppliers, they like doing work that's in their sweet spot. And actually it yeah, makes yeah. it cheaper for you, the customer, because it's their sweet spot. So it's not, they're not having stretched in order to produce that. So it's, they're not adding expenses. Mm-hmm. And so for my side, the quoting procurement supply chain side is, is AI driven. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing with ChatGPT and, and other prompt-based services, like I'm seeing AI deriving so many interesting things. If you look at, I've seen some prompt-based design tools recently. Interesting. So saying, like, I want to make a enclosure. It's going to be a square. And, uh, it needs a three millimeter wall, wall thickness. It's going to be an uh, inch and a half deep. But, you know, I could say millimeters inches because it's, AI is just going to convert it, right? Sure. And I need four holes for put in with a half inch boss and qu- quarter 20 thread or something. And all of a sudden, it'll be like, is this that kind of the shape you're looking for? We may see a design paradigm shift, almost the same shift that I saw, where I learned on AutoCAD programs when right. I was in high school in the early 2000s, like 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. where 
I would have to know what I was doing, right? Yeah. Text space in like, this line is going to be four inches at this angle. And this line is going to be here. This line is going to be here. And there was no real undo or, oh, let me change that, you know, parametric design later. Parametric yeah. started coming out around 2002-ish. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I thought it was, how crazy is that? I just make a square and then I tell it what the dimension should be later. That, that paradigm shift, which is just common CAD design. Yeah. In the future, you may have a chat box yeah. in your design stage. Basically, and I, this is where I, again, like these things I hope and pray for, right? It's just being like, hey, hey, I think I want to die cast this. And it almost acts those squiggly lines in a word processor where it's like, here's some changes and just brings you up to manufacturability. It allows you kind of manipulate and modify within your instance. That's what I'm hoping for in the near future. But that's where I really see AI driving better design, less downtime with mistakes, mm-hmm. and even catching challenges with integrated product design before they happen, before they're released into the manufacturing lifecycle. Totally. And do you know what the prompt-based design is called? Is it through a company or? I need to look that up. I was just uh, speaking with a couple of folks recently on this. So this, the, most of this is in beta stage yeah, right course. now. But yeah, if we could share that in the podcast notes, but I am very, I am super curious on this. Now, okay. my, my bias is on manufacturability feedback. So yeah, I'm like, yeah, design yeah. is cool and all, but a lot of people have design software, but a lot of people don't necessarily design for manufacturing. So that's totally. my bias is like, how can I have, tell AI prompt to be like, I'm about to make this injection molding. Squiggly lines, great. Just like a word processor, but even better, autocorrect. Yeah. Think about like when you're typing with your thumbs, right? Mm-hmm. Comple- completely misspell a word and it gives the right word out of it. Like, how can you put that design paradigm into your into your software as, as you're in the design phase. Fabulous. Okay, we'll definitely do some research and put that in the show notes so that people can check that out if it's uh, available for public, that is. So I'm sure that there's a lot of stealth people working on it too because it is really an open space and I feel like the intersection between AI and hardware development is definitely going to lag from just AI's implementation into software because, I mean, it's kind of its home base. So I'm really fascinated with where the world takes AI and Super fascinated with how we navigate the kind of IP challenges of it too, and since it's uh, trained on data. But this was such a helpful, we already have some names here, Tanso 3D and Catify AI. Cool. I'll definitely make sure to check them out myself. Um, I'm sure that our listeners will too. Awesome. But thank you so much, Greg. This has been such a helpful conversation. I think if anyone was uh, considering... um, different manufacturing capabilities in the prototype stage for rapid prototyping, they'll get so many useful chunks out of this. And do you have any last piece of advice for people working in the hardware space and trying to build ventures? To have a conversation. That's my last advice is when a manufacturer gives you feedback in your design, it is not a critique of you. We -hmm. want your success. Like we, my success is your success. Mm Mm-hmm. And everybody at Zometry, we feel the same way. So when we're giving DFM or manufacturability feedback, our goal is to help guide you in a direction in which your results will be predictable and repeatable. And having that conversation is free. So let's have it. Let's have, a, let's have that talk. Get some CAD up, even if you're not re- directly ready uh, for pressing go. Upload the file, it gives us something to talk against, and we can help guide you in the right direction. And we have so many tools uh, through our resources page online that can help you uh, get that right direction as well. But 
I just really recommend that because yeah, when you work with your manufacturer, you do get better products out of it. That's a great way to end the episode. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you so much. If you've made it this far, welcome to the Too Long Didn't Listen section. Before heading into this section, as a disclaimer, this episode was not sponsored, but Exometry did provide a little perk for Builder Circle listeners, which uh, which is $25 off any order that is above $100. You can find the code BLDCIRPOD2024 in the show notes for your use. So with that, we're going to transition to the too long didn't listen uh, section where I will quickly walk through some key takeaways. So in this episode with Greg, we started off talking about how existing manufacturing method could create a bias. And so making sure that you have awareness around design decisions you're making to ensure that existing infrastructure doesn't inherently constrain your design long-term. An example of this would be you having access to a filament-based 3D printer, but then your part, once it scales, requires potentially injection molding, but it, it doesn't have the, the correct designs for that. So making sure that is some bias that you are aware of and that it doesn't make it to early stage design decisions. We then went into the details of the difference between filament-based versus power bed of Fusion 3D printing, talked about SLS, MJF, SLS is selective laser sintering, MJF is multi-jet jet fusion. These are powder bed uh, fusion techniques, and powder is plastic. Basically, the big difference is that it makes the part essentially float instead of being built on a bed. And then talked a little bit about resin-based 3D printing with stereolithography, carbon digital light synthesis, and polyjet. Biggest learnings from that is that different 3D printing methods require different designs and support structures. Important considerations would be to acknowledge the 3D print process. So is it upside down? Is it being built on a plate or being cured in a weird way? What materials are you using and what mechanical properties are you trying to achieve? What is the end use of the prototype and is it representative of what it can be with other manufacturing methods? So these are the questions that you should ask. Resin and powder bed fusion processes could lock your design in due to unscalable ability to handle overhangs. Keep that in mind. Another big point of advice from Greg, having worked with a lot of companies, he says that you need to really have an idea on target price per system or per part. Other than that, there were really useful nuggets throughout the entire episode. I highly encourage you to go back and listen. But these are the key takeaways that I was able to pick out from the episode. So I hope that they were helpful. And as you go into your prototype phase, this episode should really help you decide on what type of prototype to do and how to scale from there. The opinions and information shared on this podcast are for informational purposes only. We always recommend that you seek professional advice before taking any action related to your business or personal ventures. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the episode.